This is the WA Country Hour with Joe Prendergast on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon to you. Happy Friday. It's been a long week, this one, but we made it. I hope you get some time off over the weekend. Uh, Over the past week on the Country Hour, we've been sharing stories of people with disabilities who are working in the agricultural sector. We've met a dairy farmer with muscular dystrophy, a grain farmer who lost the fingers on his hand in an accident, and we met Shannon, who has Down syndrome, who's working in the seafood sector. Not every disability is physical, though, and today we're catching up with a person who works on a free-range egg farm and they have anxiety. That story coming up for you after 12.30. And as usual, on a Friday, I'll give you the latest wool market information. The market's up, I think. Get a bit more information about that from Danny Burkett. And if you grow food... You'd be interested to hear the progress of a couple of WA-based potash projects. Could be some fertiliser in the pipeline. They're in the goldfields and there's also one in the Midwest that's on the radar. So we'll catch up with those shortly as well. But just briefly, the WA government has just announced a $3.4 million fund to support the introduction of electronic identification systems for the state's sheep and goat industry. From the start of 2025, it will be mandatory to have electronic identification tags in sheep and goats. They're already used in the cattle industry, but at the moment, Victoria is the only state where it's mandatory for sheep and goats. The whole reason the country's going down this path is to try and improve traceability in the event of a livestock disease outbreak, for example, foot and mouth disease. The funding will include new scanning infrastructure at sale yards and other key livestock congregation points. And it will also include an electronic tag subsidy for producers. I'd like to know though, how are you going to get a tag, one of these flash tags in a big old billy goat? I reckon that'd be pretty interesting, but we'll watch that space because those rules are in place from 2025, which isn't that far away, is it? We've been talking a lot about the delayed grain harvest, particularly in the southwest and on the southeast coast, and that's because of the weather. But that's not the only industry that's running behind schedule. Cherry pickers in the southwest have been held up, waiting for the fruit to ripen, and that's because of weather conditions. It's been too cool and too damp. Donnybrook cherry grower Sam Lichardello says so far the fruit quality is great despite the delays. The season, I'd feel, is running around about a week to a week and a half behind this time last year. It's, it's, it's quite a fair change in um, harvest time over the last few years. I'd have to say it's probably the latest it has been for a while. The crops are looking really good, what, what we've got on our trees and what my fellow growers, what I've seen, have got on their trees. Uh, there will be no shortage of quality fruit. It's just that, like I say, they're coming on in, in small portions. So everyone just have to sort of please be patient. We're trying our best down here to make sure that we get everything harvested for their Christmas present, but the quality looks second to none. They're having a bad season over east with the floods and everything in their cherries. Do we produce enough here, grow enough here in Western Australia to help out our friends over east? I'd like to say yes, but no. 
Um, they grow a large amount of fruit over the East Coast, and it's um, terrible to see what has happened there. I mean, nobody likes to see that sort of thing happen to fellow growers. You'll find what we grow here in the West will be enough for us, and if there is a little bit of surplus, which I doubt there will be, possibly could go east. I'd expect everything to be consumed within Western Australia. Donnybrook cherry grower Sam Lichardello speaking to Jackie Lynch ahead of the Manjimup Cherry Festival, which is taking place this weekend. Hopefully they have enough cherries for the festival. I'm sure they will. I've never been, but it does sound like a lot of fun, that Manjimup Cherry Festival on this weekend. Don't forget, if you'd like to get in contact with the show this afternoon, we love hearing from you. You can always send a text. The number is 0448 922604. Just pop your name on that message so I know who I'm talking to, who that message has come from. And you are listening in the digital realm again today, if you're with me, because cricket is on the radio but it's nice to have your company over on this side, on the digital-only side. So we just heard that the cherries, they're coming. They're just running a little bit late, but they will be in the market for Christmas. I have noticed some beautiful stone fruit like nectarines and peaches have been appearing in the shops for a few weeks now. They're coming from north of Perth, and also they've started picking out in the hills to the east of Perth. But much of WA stone fruit is grown in the southwest at orchards like Fernando Pesotto's, which is near Manjimup, and he's pretty happy with how the stone fruit crop at his place is looking. Well, at this stage of the game, it looks like it's on par. It's not on par on, on, on time because we normally start about the first week of January and things are shaping up quite well at the moment. So I think we'll be very, very close. It won't be that far away. Maybe it, it depends on how, how the heat goes in the next week or so because that could bring it on just a little bit. It's been quite mild, hasn't it? How has that affected the trees? Has that sort of slowed their uh, process to mature? Yes, it has. It's slowed a fair bit. And that, drip, and that little bit of rain that you get, the little storms that you get don't help either because that helps what it does. It splits your fruit. And have you had much trouble with that? Rains. Just a little bit on the early stuff. You know, the stuff that, uh, the first week of January, there's a bit of splitting on that. But so far, it looks quite reasonable. You know, it's, it's probably a very small percentage. Okay. So nectarines, maybe some split, but most looking pretty good by the sound of it. You grow a, a heap of things there, though, Fernando. You've got apricots, peaches, you've got plums. How are they all looking? What's the crop going to be like this year? In general, uh, this year has been very heavy. Um, we had to do a lot of thinning, hand thinning. We did a, a bit of chemical thinning, but um, that never worked as good. But the hand thinning, yeah, we've been we've been fairly heavy going. We only just, just about finished doing our thinning on all the nectarines and peaches and we just and there's only a handful of plums to finish off. That's a depressing time, isn't it? I don't like thinning trees. How do you go? I look at it this way. If you don't thin now, you'll be thinning when you pick. When you're thinning when you pick, it's more depressing because <laughs> the small fruit, you chuck it on the floor mm. and, uh, yeah, instead of putting it in the bag and in the bin. That's what I keep telling me, my wife. She said, oh, we're thinning heavy. I said, no, no, we're not. Well, you need to thin because what you what you don't thin now, you'll be thinning when you're picking and you'll be putting it on the ground and that's even more, like I said, depressing. Yeah. It's all about getting size though, isn't it, for the supermarkets, which I imagine is a bit frustrating because you think some of that fruit could actually grow and be quite delicious, but the specs aren't there. Well, you're right. You know, I think over the years I've been, um, I suppose, 
part of the system too where you're trying to grow them bigger and bigger so you're chasing that higher returns and you're getting you know you try and chase bigger uh, bigger better varieties that produce bigger fruit with um, trying to get better quality but yeah in the end you are compromising a bit because if it wasn't meant to be real a big big fruit uh, I think people perceptions probably got lost a little bit mm. Yes, interesting, isn't it? Speaking of pricing, though, uh, going into the supermarkets at the moment, it's not a cheap exercise to buy some stone fruit to make a fruit salad. Are you rubbing your hands together at those prices? If we can get half the prices I've got in the retail store, we'll be very happy people. But by the time I come on board, uh, that price won't be nowhere near that sort of pricing. It'll be a lot lower. Well, this year, I think we'll be batting the average about $2.00. Anywhere between a dollar eighty to two fifty, we might get a touch of three dollars in it, but it'll be interesting to see because the vibes at the moment, being heavy crop, I don't think it'll go very, you know, uh, it'll be very high. Across the board, that crop is quite heavy too. So I imagine if that's the case for you, it might be the case for other people. So there's probably going to be an abundance of fruit. There's going to be a lot of fruit, yes. Whether it meets the spec the specification that you know to put it into the market. It, it remains to be seen. Do you do roadside sales or anything like that? Or, the, you know, the pick your own that's become pretty big with the strawberries? Do you do anything like that? We are starting to think more and more about that line. The only issue that I've got with that is there's two issues. We haven't got a really a lot of – the population is not big enough to to lend itself in this area. In Perth, it works a lot better in the city. It works a lot better because you've got more population. We're down here, we haven't got it. I am looking at it, but I don't reckon it will work for us. Oh, you never know. Give it a go, maybe, Fernando, and see what, see, see what happens. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. You shouldn't never take any doors. You should leave them, uh, leave them open and, and you know, see what it's like. I wanted to ask you, too, you've got avocados. You've been busy picking them at the moment. Last year was a bumper crop for you. How are you going this year? Last year I had six people working for me doing the trees we're doing. We've only got about 500 to 700 trees. And this year it's only just me and the missus picking. So far we've done, oh, what are the two, four, six? Yeah, about 400 trees and we only got six bins. Wow. So she's a very light, light crop, very you, light crop. You got about 200 bins last year, didn't you? Yes. Last year we did very well. We did, um, they were quite nice and, and good size. Uh, this year. But next year's crop looks more promising. I'm not the only one in that pot. There's, I think there's a lot of other other growers in the same scenario around the place. Mm. I've heard, you know, I've heard many, many others uh, complain that they haven't got a lot, you know, a lot on their trees. The, pro- the problem is when there's not a lot on your trees, you, your eyes get accustomed to the leaves and sometimes you miss, you miss them when you go picking them. Oh, they blend in. Yeah, they do blend in quite well. I had a bloke come here the other day, we were talking about it. He's a gadget designer. And I said to him, well, what about designing me a gadget that I can grow along the avocado trees where it spots the avocados? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, that hard to see. If you've got a gadget that goes along and it goes, beep, beep, there's one up there. No worries. <laughs> Good, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll be interested to see if he takes it on board. That's your wife at the moment. Uh, at, the, at the moment, it's the wife that goes, beep, beep, and tells me where it is, yeah. <laughs> How are you going to go for workers to get that heavy stone fruit crop off, though? I imagine uh, the two of you probably can't tackle that. 
No, I, I think I think we'd be fairly safe because by the time um, our stone fruit come on board, avocados are just about all completed. Them workers that are in the avocado orchard, we start to float around for the stone fruit and the apple season. Beautiful. Well, all the best with it. I'll enjoy uh, tucking into your fruit in January, Fernando. Good to talk to you on the Country Hour. No worries at all. Fernando Pesotto, he and his wife grow stone fruit and avocados at Manjimup. 17 past 12. A text in, Joe, have you heard the world's worst cherry joke? No, it's pitiful. <laughs> Thank you for that text, that one there from Chile. Uh, if you'd like to send me a text, I don't know, do we want world jokes? It is Friday. We could do it. Zero double four eight. Nine double two six zero four. Just send me a text. Pop your name on there, though. Uh, the number again: zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. And in the horticulture sector, a new report by accounting firm Deloitte has recommended that a single enforceable standard for accommodation be established to improve living conditions for horticultural workers. The report's author, Victoria Whitaker, says horticulture workers are often vulnerable to exploitation. They're workers who don't necessarily have English as a first language, don't necessarily fully understand their rights. Uh, Typically, they're employed either directly by a grower or through a third-party contractor. And the accommodation that they're provided can be you know, up to eight people living in a bedroom in a four-bedroom house. So lots of people living in that house with one bathroom and lots of rules about what they can and can't do. Now, we know that uh, there is some improvement in the hort sector with the um, conditions in Queensland where people have to be licensed if they're going to be involved in contracting labour. And there's also a minimum wage. And so some things are being improved but there's clearly still a very big problem when it comes to the sorts of living conditions that people are in. That's right. They do need to be licensed under the Pacific um, Labor Migrant Scheme. So there is a licensing requirement and there are certain duties that they need to fulfil in order to bring workers to Australia. But I think what we found was also some workarounds um, for those different factors that, that came through. For example, under the scheme for Pacific um migrant workers, they're required to provide a support person, so someone who's going to look after the workers' wellbeings. And what we found in some instances was the cost of that was being deducted from the workers' wages. So you're recommending a single enforceable standard for accommodation for workers. How, how would that work? We, we make a number of recommendations, and that's definitely one of them. We did find a number of different standards that are out there at the moment that are being applied in different ways. We believe that by Providing a base protects workers, but by lifting the bar in other ways as well, you can actually attract workers to different regions of Australia and therefore give competitive advantage by actually looking after the workers. And we did find some really good examples of workers being looked after. And there were some other suggestions from various unions who've been involved in this this commissioning of the study as well or or, or in responding to it. Uh, The need for a housing plan for regional Australia. Did you consider that idea as well? Yeah, we did. Absolutely. So there's not a lot of regional housing available at the moment. And so having fit for purpose housing for workers, which there is in some parts of Australia, fit for purpose housing for workers where they're sleeping in in Donga style accommodation, like what you see in the mines could be appropriate. But solving the um, the regional housing issue is is something that's important, I think, for all Australians as well as for these workers. Victoria Whitaker from Deloitte speaking to David Clawton. 
The report was published ahead of the United Nations Human Rights Day, which is on Saturday, and the review was commissioned by Coles and the Retail Supply Chain Alliance. You're with Joe Prendergast for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Nice to have your company this afternoon. The state government's 50% royalty rebate to sulphate of potash producers was meant to finish soon, but it will now be extended. It comes as the ASX-listed company Australian Potash is looking to expand its Lake Wells project in the eastern goldfields. Managing Director Mac Shackleton says... While the industry is still getting off the ground in Australia, the latest state government support shows the value of locally produced potash. These projects do work. There are many examples of them across the globe where they have been operating for multi-generations and they're very profitable. And they are efficient, successful project developments. Looking now to the recent announcement that the state government will extend the 50% royalty rebate for potash projects. How does this help with, I guess, Australian potash and the Lake Wells project? What it indicates is that the state government of Western Australia, along with all the participants in the in the SOP sector here, we all see and appreciate the fundamental importance of developing these projects to not only the companies developing them, obviously, but also to the state and the farmers within the state of Western Australia. What's the timeline looking like for Lake Wells now in terms of moving ahead towards production and and, and full operation? So we've got a a schedule that sees us producing SOP 36 months from making a final investment decision, and that's uh, what we believe to be quite a conservative schedule. What what needs to happen for us to make a final investment decision is, is, of course, for some investment to arise to help us get the project off the ground. So we've been working pretty hard the last couple of years on getting that investment in place. Encouragingly, the global macroeconomic model for sulphate of potash has got stronger through COVID supply chain restrictions and so on, began to push the price up. And now with the conflict in Northern Europe, all all that's doing is crystallising the notion that Food security, i.e. fertiliser security, is pretty important. Australian Potash Managing Director Matt Shackleton. And expanding Lake Wells would see the company taking on the Salt Lake Potash project, which went into receivership last year. If that comes off, their footprint in the eastern goldfields will be more than 1,900 square kilometres of salt lakes. Another company looking at the economics of potash is Centrex. As well as owning Queensland-based Agriflex, the company has the Oxley Potassium Resource, which is located between Minganew and Morrowa. This one is different to the Salt Lake projects. It's based on a 155 million tonne resource of potassium-bearing rock. The first plan was to make murate of potash or mop using a process that involves heating the rock to 1,000 degrees Celsius. But Sintrex Managing Director Robert Mansell says the company is researching cheaper ways to get the mineral, including using a thermal leach process. What it does is it gets you 
potassium into a solution. And once it's in solution, you can then really make whatever you want out of it. You can add a, add a sulfate to it and you, and you make uh, SOP, or you can add a chloride to it and make potassium chloride or, or MOP. But you can also use it to make some really other novel potassium fertilizers, like a maybe a potassium carbonate, which is you know typically what's more often found in nature and, and certainly possibly more environmentally friendly than uh, some of those chloride products. So it's really a matter of just getting potassium in, into a solution and then you can choose what you want to make out of it depending on what the customers want. And obviously at a lower temperature, the extraction would be cheaper? Yeah, it makes a big difference, you know, um, a big difference when you're operating at these lower temperatures. And so typically we're looking at, you know, somewhere maybe between 160 to maybe 180 degrees C. It would be done within a constrained pressure. So you're probably looking at about maybe two atmospheres, something like that. Um, but there's still relatively low pressure. But that results in a much lower capital cost project and a much lower operating cost. You're obviously much likely to, to be able to withstand any price variation if you're if you're much lower on the cost curve. WA, you know, has a lot of a lot of canola crops and things like that, and, and a lot of those crops, you know, would do better with higher potassium fertilisers. And so it's, a, it's really is a benefit for um, Western Australia if you can get some cheap potassium fertilisers out there. Got any mm. idea when these ideas might become reality? Yeah, I think, you know, for our test work, I think we're probably at least another six to nine months away from completing all the things we want to do and then we'll make a decision, you know, if we want to proceed with that or we'll look at other options for that project. And in terms of low cost and making the extraction process cheaper, how much could that flow through to the, the cost of the potassium fertiliser product at the end? What sort of a discount are we looking at? Yeah, well, you know, with fertilisers, they are a traded commodity, so they do track the world's price. Um, you know, there are various offsets or netbacks based upon freight advantages. But I think the more supply there is, you know, locally and the more supply there is around the world, that's when the farmers will really start to see the benefits and, uh, and a reduced price. Sintrex Managing Director Robert Mensell speaking with Lucinda Jose about the Oxley Potassium Resource, which is located between Minganyu and Morrowa in my part of the world in the Midwest. And, uh, and that news, and we've been talking about potash because the state government's 50% royalty rebate to sulphate of potash producers was meant to finish soon, but it will be extended. Life is full of last-minute decisions. Dad, what is for dinner? I don't know, mate. We'll grab something out. But in a bushfire, there is no last minute because that could mean tragedy. Mate, you need to get out. Don't go back in. Will you stay and defend or leave? Whatever you decide, put your plan in place now. If you stay, you might be without electricity and other essentials, so make sure you have enough food, fuel, batteries and other supplies for at least five days. Remember... There are no second chances in a bushfire. Keep safe and keep listening to ABC Radio. Some waterbombing aerial strike teams are going to be based in WA's grain-growing regions this summer. The idea was trialled last year to offer assistance to communities fighting fires in the hot months and that trial was obviously successful because DFES Commissioner Darren Clem says aerial strike teams will be again strategically placed in uh, the best locations to help communities fighting crop fires. So each each strike team uh, consists of two fixed-wing water bombers and they also are supported by 
another helicopter which is uh, it controls their drops uh, from above the fire uh, and then also a, a fuel truck so they've been based there's one of the strike teams has been based in Geraldton since mid-october uh, and we uh, we established the second strike team in Narragin in late November uh, and we'll just move those aircraft down as harvest is completed so uh, we're in constant contact with the uh, Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development around uh, the progression of harvest and um, as, it, as it finishes in the north, uh, we'll cycle them down and um, you know, that, that obviously we've got the one in Narragin but um, also we'll, we'll look to establish uh, one of the strike teams uh, possibly out at Esperance but uh, we'll just see how harvest progresses and we know that um, you know, there's still, still a fair bit of water laying around down at, down at Esperance. So. Okay, so for now, the team based in Narragin, uh, where do you see that team primarily serving in WA? You mentioned the one in Geraldton, but the Narragin one, where will that be focused towards? Anywhere northeast and south of, of Narragin, it'll go to where the, to where the fires are. Um, a lot of the time, uh, obviously, farmers get on top of those fires really early and, and there's no need to, to roll the, the water bombers to come and help, but when that sort of initial attack doesn't succeed, that's when you know the water bombers really come into their own in terms of um, they certainly don't put the fire out, uh, but they are you know very good at um, just just knocking down the the head fire and uh, and allowing um, you know farmers and volunteers and others to to get in and 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 put the fire out. You know we we know that um, that it's during that initial phase of these uh, particularly crop fires. Where the conditions are really poor, um, you know, really strong winds and high temperatures. That um, you know, just the addition in of of aircraft really helps to take the intensity out of the fires and allows uh, makes it much safer uh, for the firefighters on the ground, but also allows them to to get in and and, and get the fire out. These strike teams are obviously supported by um, the other aircraft that we have. Uh, some based in in Janicott, some in Bustleton. And then there are a raft of other water bombers that will come on over the course of the, of the summer. Um, the large air tank is now based in Bustleton and that's, uh, that's operational as of uh, last week. And uh, there's, a, there's an additional large air tanker coming in um, uh, next week which will be operational from the 16th of December uh, out of Bustleton as well. Darren Clem, Commissioner for the Department of Fire and Emergency Services, speaking to Tim Wong C. I did see one of those um, water bombing planes operating at fire that we had up this way a few weeks ago. It's pretty impressive. And they will be based strategically uh, around the state over the summer. Let's head to the newsroom now. Uh, Andrea Mays is with us. Hello. Hello there. A 68-year-old man has been charged with bribery and fraud as part of an ongoing investigation into alleged corruption at WA's Department of Communities. Police allege that between 2014 and 2020, the man transferred more than $120,000 to a department employee who was known to him. During that time, the man from North Perth was awarded more than $1 million in contracts by that same employee. The Australian Federal Police Association has welcomed an independent police inquiry into the prosecution of Bruce Lerman for the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins at Parliament House in 2019. Mr Lerman has always maintained his innocence and the charge was dropped after juror misconduct resulted in a mistrial. And a Canadian judge has approved a class action lawsuit brought by three parents who say their children became addicted to video game Fortnite. The parents say their children would forego sleeping, eating and showering because they were hooked on the game. More news at one.
Goodness me, that's a serious addiction, isn't it? Um, I've been asking for your texts this afternoon. The number, if you'd like to get in touch, is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Joe is listening. I think he's on the seed cleaner again. He is, and he has a question: Will electronic tagging of sheep make it easier to use sheep as loan security? I don't know, Joe. It's a good question, though, isn't it? If you'd like to get in contact with the program, the number is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Catherine Shelfout is at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Are you there? I'm here. Hello. It's working. Yay! Oh, good. <laughs> How's the forecast looking for the south of the state? So for the south of the state, actually it's pretty quiet at the moment. We've got a little bit of cloud over the southwest corner and a weak cold front that's just coming through. Uh, Cape Lewin's had 2.6 millimetres, so yeah, we really wouldn't expect uh, much more than that. Um, Just a few showers uh, south of a line round about Bustleton to Bremer Bay uh, today. And uh, once that moves through, we just get a ridge that starts to push in. So, um, yeah, so for today, just the showers there and really um, fine through uh, the rest of the southern half and into the high 20s and low 30s once you get out into the eastern wheat belt uh, and the great southern. Uh, moving on to tomorrow, we have a ridge that will move in along the south coast. Um, and so we'll just see some cloud uh, uh, through southern districts there near the coast um, and maybe just a few light showers as well sort of uh, maybe between around Albany and Esperance region. Uh, winds will freshen up a little bit and turn south southeasterly, a um, little bit fresher in the evening and more so through uh, northern parts of the southwest land division and uh, sort of rainfall less than a millimetre just along the south coast. On Sunday we'll see that ridge uh, push a little further east and we'll start to see a west coast trough redeveloping which is fairly typical for this time of year. Um, so we'll get a fresh and gusty southeasterly surge moving once again through um, more northern parts of the southwest land division, uh, but also through the southern uh, Gascoigne into the goldfields and um, eastern parts of the state as well. So once again, um, really not much in terms of uh, rainfall or any other significant weather over the south of the state, maybe just a couple of light showers uh, along the Esperance coast. And then Monday and Tuesday, um, that trough near the west coast really does deepen. Uh, We'll have a low that forms at the base of the trough um, over the southern Gascoigne and into Tuesday that low will move south into the central west as well. And uh, the ridge will really persist uh, south of the state through that period. So with the west coast trough deepening, uh, we'll see winds uh, turning a bit east more... A little bit more east south easterly, and they will become quite fresh and gusty again through northern parts. That's probably the the windiest day, um, and uh, also through the central west and over the Perth hills as well. We tend to get that pattern uh, with pretty fresh winds overnight and early morning. So once again, cloudy along the south coast, but fine elsewhere. Um, we haven't got anything on the forecast yet, but we do start to see a little bit of instability um, just sort of east of the trough through the um, through the wheat belt. So. Maybe um, we'll just keep an eye on that over the next few days and see if our uh, computer models start to put maybe just a slight um, chance of a thunderstorm or a high base shower. Mm. But I can't see that there'd be much rainfall, but um, obviously lightning is always a, uh, a risk when uh, harvesting is happening. So yeah, that's pretty been, much it. 
There's been quite a lot of that lately, hasn't there? A few little storms coming through. There has, and look, it's pretty typical to get the trough moving inland and for thunderstorm activity to be around through the wheat belt and the goldfields this time of year. But um, for the next four days, at least, it's pretty quiet on that front. So just, yeah, watching sort of for Tuesday, Wednesday, whether something does develop. It's been really hot in the north. Is that going to continue? It is very hot in the north, um, so there is a heatwave warning out at the moment. So um, severe to extreme heatwave conditions um, through the Pilbara, the Kimberley and north and south interior. And unfortunately it is continuing and probably not easing until... Oh, maybe sort of uh, early to mid next week. So Marble Bar forecast. I mean, Marble Bar is always hot, but um, hotter than usual for this time of year. And uh, its max temp is forecast to be 46 on Sunday. So that, yeah, that looks to be the hottest day. So it's really just um, a a persistent trough sitting there through the north and um, nothing to really uh, move that heat on until that period. So... um, for sort of that Monday, Tuesday period, we start to see the trough moving uh, further towards the west coast. And so we'll start to see a bit more cloud and thunderstorm activity and that will start to bring temperatures down. So for today, the thunderstorm activity is really confined to the Kimberley and uh, eastern parts of the interior and just a very gradual sort of creeping back of that towards the west coast over the next four days. And any warnings for us, Catherine? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the heatwave warning for mm-hmm. Kimberley, Pilbara, North and South Interior and a strong wind warning from the Ningaloo coast right around uh, to the Bunbury Geograph coast and that's for tomorrow, not for today. Thank you very much for all that information. Richard Hudson uh, is stepping in with rainfall details. Has there been much around? No, hardly any at all, Joe. So in the northern and eastern forecast districts, the, in the Kimberley, Billaluna had five And then the only other one that's almost worth reading out is in the interior, Warburton had four. And then for the entire southwest land division forecast districts, hardly anything at all. In the southwest, Collie gets a mention, but that's eight mils over three days. So that's cheating, as you know. And the southern coastal region, the Duke, my favourite spot, uh, recorded 10 mils, but that's actually it. But um, I've got some good news for most of southeast Australia. The big wet could be coming to an end pretty soon. ANU climatologist Professor Janet Lindsay says, after nearly three years of rain and flood events, the main wet climate drivers led by a triple La Nina are rapidly breaking down. What's going on is actually part of the sort of normal um, coming to a close of one of these events. Uh, Basically, La Nina events and El Nino events as well, actually, are are tied in with the cycle of the seasons. And as we go through summer and then head towards autumn, these events break down. And that has happened even over the last few years. We've had several La Ninas on the trot, as everybody now knows very well. Um, But each one of them has gone back down towards neutral conditions starting about this time of the year and reaching neutral by about March or April. And that's normal. What's happening with the current event is that we're seeing the beginning of that weakening. So when we look at the Pacific Ocean, the key sort of characteristic of a La Nina event is a huge pool of water that's below average temperature right across from the Central Pacific towards the Americas, whereas around Australia, we've got warmer than average water. And we've had record high sea surface temperatures around the northern and eastern coast of Australia this this last um, spring. And then into summer currently. But underneath the surface, that's where a lot of the really important action is happening. 
So when we look down below the surface of the Pacific, and we've got data to do that, we can see that the warm uh, water that's at the surface is supported from below off the Australian coast, so it's mm-hmm. warmer down there too. And then over into the, the uh, central and eastern Pacific, it's also colder down below the surface. Now that cold pool under the surface is shrinking and that has been helping to maintain the overall pattern of La Nina all these months. But that's now shrinking and the warmer water is starting to move under the surface out into the central Pacific from the Australian end of things. As that comes to the surface, that's going to start breaking down that big cold pool. Probably around about the end of February, we should be looking at the event coming closer to neutral. It will have come off its big peak of La Nina, definitely. But look, we've got the rest of summer to go through, and it's not going to disappear instantly. What's happened in the Indian Ocean is quite different. The Indian Ocean dipole, which has been negative and has been feeding warm, moist air across the continent of Australia for months, uh, that has broken down, and that tends to break down more quickly. Mm. Um, And it's all tied in with the monsoon in the tropics and all that kind of thing. ANU climatologist Professor Janet Lindsay with the news that La Nina could be coming to an end. That's after three years of being hanging around. Text in from Daryl. Hi, Joe, listening from Querreting on The Chaser. Great show. Daryl, thank you. Love messages like that. Can never get enough of those. Thank you. Listening on The Chaser in Querreting. I hope that's all going well and... Good on you for listening on uh, streaming, Daryl. You might be on the website or you might be on the app, but it's working, which is good to hear. More than 100 ex-Defence Force personnel are assisting with the grain harvest across Australia this season. You might remember Operation Grain Harvest Assist started last year when the pandemic prevented overseas workers from travelling to Australia. Daniloquin's Mark Rogan was part of the Army's Royal Australian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers and this is his second year helping with Victoria's grain harvest. Last time I was out at Japarit uh, for a family farm out there and I was uh, chaser bin driving. And uh, to me that was a very good apprenticeship. I, I learned how grain flowed and how it moves and the speed and the efficiency that uh, you had to operate at as a chaser bin driver when you're running two headers and only you and large paddocks. What are you doing this time, Ren? I'm driving the semi-trailer, heavy combination. Uh, I got my licence probably 18 months ago under Project Verto, which I believe was a Commonwealth system, to get over 60s trade skilled modified and to give them other skills. So I snatched that and I'm here doing, doing this now. This is the most satisfying job, uh, one of the most satisfying jobs I've ever had, to see uh, what's done and you're taking part of it and the grain going into the bunkers at the silos and then the grain going back out down to Geelong. Where's it going? It's just you're adding to, uh, to Australia's um, exports. Hi, my name's Ian Bennett and I'm from Canberra. What's prompted you to come and drive a truck to help with the grain harvest? Well, I've always had a fascination with machinery and when I got out of the army about 22 years ago I sort of fell into the IT trade and, and all the job advertisements I saw through the years all wanted experience, you know, experienced headers, chasing and drivers experience and I, because I don't have much experience in the truck driving game so then when Grain Harvest Assist came up 
I was on the course at Longrenong and from a chaser bin job I did last year, I spent that money on getting a licence upgrade to multi-combination. What's a typical day looking like for you while you're here in Oyen? Uh, it depends a lot on weather obviously, how the grain's coming off. Uh, most of the time we're just doing runs either out of the chaser bin or the field bins um, when us trucks can't keep up and uh, probably three, maybe four loads a day. I mean, well, providing we're um, uh, not fatigued, we'll go until the silos close, but no, it's good, I like it, it's fabulous. You've just taken me from the farm to the receival site, and while I've been in the cab with you, I've noticed that there's a picture of a crab and number 33 on the windscreen. What's that all about? Oh, I'm a, uh, I joined the Army in 1978 as an apprentice, uh, electronics technician. And then from there I went to Royal Australian Corps of Signals. And the crab is a symbol from uh, apprentices school. And, uh, and in the middle of the body you always put your intake number in there and just people immediately know what it is. The work that you're doing with Operation Grain Harvest Assist, do you envisage wanting to continue doing this in the years to come? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm loving it. I like, I like working for family farms. The job I did last year was for a, a contract harvester. And, I much, and you're moving around all the time and I think I much prefer uh, being in one place for longer getting to actually know the people you're working for where you get a, a virtual hug every time you wander down the street you know people say hello and they give you a wave and, and all that sort of thing it's a really really nice atmosphere I like it Ian Bennett from Canberra who's helping out with Operation Grain Harvest Assist in Victoria he was chatting to Kelly Hollingworth. Be very different, wouldn't it, if you had no experience in that sector to be suddenly on the chaser with two headers to keep up to? The WA Country Hour with Joe Prendergast on ABC Radio WA. All this week on the Country Hour, you've heard some pretty inspiring stories from people with all sorts of disabilities. Some have had accidents, leaving them obviously physically disabled, but some disabilities aren't so obvious. For example, Bradley Sirahong has anxiety. Through Employment Agency Forest Personnel, he managed to find a job working at a free-range egg farm near Busselton, and so far, things have been going well. I get like anxiety based around my stomach aches and stuff like that. So when I get anxious around large crowds, so this place is good also because there's not a lot of people around me. Just two of us usually work in the shed here. Do you find that it's easier if people know you have anxiety and they can make adjustments for you or is it something that you try and um, hide? No, I I do let, so if I do have like a, we work as a team here, so like uh, if I'm having, if I'm feeling like sick or a bit panicked, like having a bit of anxiety due to my stomach and stuff like that, one of my workmates will, uh, he'll help out and sometimes run my, like go into the mice and do the floor and sometimes when I'm not feeling well. But yeah, it's a good team, everybody's like, it works well together. So how did you get this job? What was that process like? I heard about it through my job provider. They were talking about, they were saying that um, there was a place that was looking for, um, egg packing place looking for some hiring. And uh, I was interested in that. I was looking at a bunch of other jobs, but this is a job that I got and it's, I'm happy with it. Mm. So. What is it about this job that you like? It's not stressful. It's pretty, 
chill and relax. It's pretty simple and easy. Only times when it gets stressful is when something happens with the machine. But besides that, when nothing goes wrong, it's all pretty easy flow. So what's your favourite aspect of the job so far? I know you've only been here for a month or so, but what is it that you like the most? Uh, the thing that I get look forward to when I come here is uh, getting to go do the floor runs and get to look at the chickens and stuff. Sometimes I pat a few and they're just... The way they look at you and stuff with the little biggie eyes and stuff mm-hmm. is it's quite amusing. And you walk around and you, you sometimes don't notice if you're just, like, looking forward, but you turn around and you see a whole army of chickens just following you. Yeah. And it just feels... Like a power trip, I guess. So you turn on the machine, the belt's run, there's a couple of eggs that usually come. You know, when this whole thing gets full, you just keep doing it until you get six high. Do you have any advice for other people who might be in a similar situation to you in terms of their mental health? Not really sure. All I know is that I... Since I started working, I've definitely become more confident and less depressed because I'm becoming active and doing stuff. So you feel better when you're doing something, being active. Do you have any advice for employers, I suppose, if they have employees who have anxiety? What would your advice be for the employers? Not too sure, probably just talk to the employees, see what kind of um, condition they are, you know, and just try to find um, what works best for the employees. You know, some some people do better in different aspects of the job than others. So I do pretty well here. Some people do better over there. So I guess... Um, for me, usually I have like a hypersensitive smell, so I'd usually get nauseated pretty quickly, but I've gotten used to the smell of the chickens and stuff. But um, if there's someone that couldn't get used to it, they could probably work in the packing room. doesn't smell over yeah. there. Yeah, so, so sort of good communication. Yeah, just yeah. Uh, you know, see what their strengths are. Bradley Sirahong at the Bustleton Free Range Egg Farm. And Bradley isn't the only one in the team with a mental health condition. His boss, Gavin Butler, has a fair bit of experience employing people with anxiety. I just take a positive attitude towards them. I'm not mean. I don't talk to them harshly or anything like that. If they come to me and say, oh, I feel a bit, I've got a bit of anxiety today or I'm not feeling well, I say, well, at least you turn up for work. That's the main thing. And just see if you can get through the day without any problems. And then we talk to our other staff and let them know as well, and they keep an eye on them. So they're very good workers, and I can't complain about them. Most, well, all the time they turn up for work. So. And what is it, do you think, about this job specifically, dealing with chickens and eggs and maybe, you know, you're not in, like, a customer service role? What is it about that that makes it suitable for people who may have anxiety? I think, well, they seem to talk to me about dealing with people they don't like to deal with people a lot and probably because we don't have a lot of staff plus the chickens they say helps them relax and all that sort of thing like brad was saying he goes in there and pats them and all that sort of thing so it's pretty good for them they enjoy it Mm. so how long's brad been with you for i think just over a month so he's turned up every day and if i've asked him to do extra shifts he he puts his hands up so he's pretty yeah he's very reliable you mentioned to me earlier that 
sometimes you've had a worker in the past who's had sort of an anxiety attack. So what's it like when that happens and how do you help them to deal with it? I just give them encouragement and just have a talk to them and that sort of thing, work through with them and that, you know, talk to them about it. And they normally warn me, some of them will warn me, oh, I don't feel very good today, stay away from me type thing, you know what I mean? But then by the time they've been here for an hour or something, they come back around and they're happy. So do you have advice for other employers? Oh, well, I'd advise them to take them on. I think I've got no problems. I've had no problems with the workers that I've got from forest personnel with um, anxiety and that, and they're very good workers. And when they come here, they seem to put uh, 110% effort in, which Mm. is good. Does it help you to know when you're hiring someone if they have some sort of mental health condition or anxiety? Is that helpful for you or do you feel like you treat people differently? Or oh, I don't treat people differently. I treat people as they come, isn't it, face, on face value. So why should people be treated differently? Basselton Free Range Eggs part owner Gavin Butler catching up with Georgia Hargreaves. Six to one, we'll catch up and find out how the wool market fared in detail this week. The market is up though, which is good news. But cattle have been sold at the Mount Barker sale yards over the past two days. Tracy Kilner has been there for both days. Tracy, can you run us through the prices, please? We had the wiener sale yesterday, trade sale today. So I'll start with the wiener sale oh, numbers. Um, the wiener sale yesterday, we had 1,826 head of excellent quality calves with 375 steer calves offered weighing over 380 kilos. The heavy steer calves trended up on last sale while medium weights eased marginally. Heifers gained in all weight categories with quality Angus and Charolais heifers selling to restockers for future breeders reaching 536 cents a kilo. Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 378 to 438 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 420 to 516 cents. The lighter steers from 280 to 330 kilos made 450 to 572 cents, and weights under 280 kilos returned 542 to 588 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers weighing over 380 kilos made from 372 to 422 cents. Weights from 330 to 380 kilos sold for 360 to 536 cents. The lighter weights between 280 and 330 kilos returned 438 to 478 cents. And weights under 280 kilos sold for 438 to 478 cents, averaging 460 cents a kilo. Today's trade sale seen 404 head of mixed quality cattle. The yarding was again dominated by trade weight cattle with most categories trending down on last week's gain. Grown steers weighing 600 to 750 kilos sold for 300 to 310 cents. Weights under 600 kilos made 300 to 320 and the under 500 kilo steers sold for 280 to 428 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made from 288 to 330 cents to feeder buyers and the heavier weight heifers sold for 258 to 310 cents a kilo. Heavy cows ease selling for 160 to 226 cents while young medium weight cows to feeders sold for 230 cents a kilo. Store cows returned 120 to 226 cents with restocker interest. Heavy bulls sold from 220 to 230 cents to processors. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. 
Tracy, thank you so much for all that information from the Mount Barker cattle sale heading now to the wool market. The east was up 54 cents to close at 1,278 and the west was also up. 49 and it closed at 1419. Danny Burkett has the details for us. Hi Danny, take us through what happened. Yeah, we had a very strong market through the three centres this week. In Fremantle, we had no we had a quote of 1980 as the closing quote on a 17 micron. That was a nominal quote, meaning there wasn't enough 17 microns to actually put a firm quote together. I would suggest they close somewhere around $21 clean. 18 micron were quoted by AWEX up 90 at 17.80 on the close. 19 micron, 75. Deer up for the week, 15.75 for the close. 20 microns plus 70. They closed 14.50. 21 microns up 70, closing 13.70. 22 microns up 60, closing at 13.15. Pieces and bellies on the fine end were plus 40 over the two days. On the medium end were plus 10. Locks, stains, crutchings, all minus 10 on the first day, but then held their ground on the second day. Lambs and wieners fully firm over the two days. Again, we're seeing the VM start to lift in those lamb types, and they are reducing slightly. As we, um, we look at the balance of the market pretty much across the board, if you sold wool in Fremantle this week, $1,665 per bale on average, that was $70 more than last week. And Fremantle was the centre to be this week with a $9.30 average across all types. If you sold wool in Sydney, $8.83 in Melbourne, $7.72. So good to see Fremantle to be the centre of the universe of the wool market at this stage. <laughs> As it should be. Who were the major buyers, Danny? We had the normal buys in the top three to four, but it was good to see that we're seeing that spread close up. Tech wool trading just shy of 16%, and that is of Merino fleece wool across the country. Endeavour wool exports 14%, TNU 12.5%, Morris wool 11.5%. And what I like to see about that is we didn't have a particular buyer leading the charge. Uh, that was probably 5 or 6% as we normally do in the market. Those top four squeezing up in the percentages they were taking, so hence more competition. So it was great to see that good spread of buyers um, all taking an even spread of the purchases through the week. Now, is there a sale next week? Now, we do, just a little bit on the sale next week. Um, we have just shy of 50,000 bales. AWEX are quoting that as the largest sale for the season. Now, if we look, that is spread between Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle. Melbourne will be trading over three days. Interesting that in the previous months, the largest rally in the wool market has lasted for two weeks. So as we move into next week in this current rally, that will be week two. So hopefully if we pass, if what comes to pass we've seen in previous months, we will walk into the Christmas recess on a positive tone. The other good thing about the market this week, Melbourne was the last centre trading, and that was yesterday being Thursday. So those quotes I gave for Fremantle, if we actually look at Melbourne, they formed dearer quotes again, in particular on the finer wools. So if we look at 19 micron, dollar, a dollar clean dearer for the week. So those Melbourne quotes finished roughly 20 to 30 higher than Fremantle. So even if the market remains fully firm as we walk into Fremantle next week, we could expect a dearer market. Danny, thank you so much. Enjoy your weekend, won't you? I think you might be um, heading off to a Christmas function. Thanks, mate.
Danny Furkett there with the wool market. It's one o'clock.